Ah, well, good morning, everyone. It's good to have you here, and uh, he is risen. He is risen indeed, yes. Well, it's good to have you here. I'm actually super excited. This is our third service this morning, and I think it's going to be the chance to get it right. So, uh, you know, we'll see how that goes. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive in. Father God, we thank you so much for uh, bringing us here this morning. But even more, we thank you for uh, a reason to be here. We thank you for the fact that um, you not only created us, you not only created us with purpose and loved us, but you sent your son to pursue us. You sent your son to seek and save the lost. You sent your son to go to a cross where his body was broken and, and where he bled for us, for our sin, for our salvation. Father, remember on Friday celebrating the, the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior. But today we celebrate his resurrection. And I pray this morning as we open your word that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we might be filled with joy and, and wonder and awe as we think about a Savior who's risen from the dead. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Well, it's good to have you here. And um, we're talking about peace today as we talk about Easter. I'll just, I, I have this, I'm timing myself because we've had so little time between the services, but this is the last service, so I guess it doesn't really matter. Um, <clears throat> actually, the last service, I can't explain it. A couple of my, the pages of my sermon went missing, like in the middle of it. And so those poor people didn't get the whole sermon. You guys are going to get the whole thing. So, so uh, anyways, I hope you enjoyed the weather this last week. It was kind of weird. It was kind of strange. Uh, nine days ago, my wife and I were in Phoenix, and we were down there visiting our daughter and spent some time with some friends uh, from Gateway, actually live, have a place in Tucson. And um, nine days ago, this was uh, what my world looked like. So I was, uh, we had uh, rented an Airbnb, and we are in Phoenix, and it was about 90 degrees. And so I was just sitting in the sun, basking in the sun and the warmth and enjoying it. And the Airbnb, they told us they had a dog whose name was Shelby. And they were like, are you okay with dogs? Because if you're not, we'll make it so Shelby can't be there. But if you are, Shelby's kind of a lover and she'll probably want to spend time with you. And I was like, sure, I, we like dogs. And so anyways, the first day we were there, you know, we went out by the pool and we're hanging out and Shelby came out and doesn't bark, just a really loving dog. And she would come and sit next to me. She'd just sit next to me and I could reach over and pet her and it was okay. And then she apparently got comfortable enough. She decided she wanted to rest her chin on my legs, which she did. Now I have pictures that I'm not going to show you, but it didn't end here. And then a little while later, Shelby decided, hmm, well, this is working out. So she, she took her legs and she put the le her legs up on me. And then finally, she decided she was a lap dog. And she literally got up and she was in my lap. I'm not going to show you that picture that my wife has it. And Shelby, that's a pretty big dog, is just sitting in my lap. But I was sitting there that day and I was enjoying the sunshine and just enjoying the heat. And I was thinking. I was thinking about things like happiness and, and contentment and peace. I was thinking about them because I knew nine days later I would be up here and we'd be talking about the resurrection and I was just trying to think, um, this, is my, uh, this is my 29th Easter at Gateway. And so I've preached on the resurrection a couple of times. No, no, no. I've preached on the resurrection a couple of times and I'm always trying to think how to get to that. But, but I was thinking about happiness and peace and part of the reason was I had just seen a study a few days earlier 
here on, on happiness in the world. I don't know if you've ever seen the World Happiness Index, but it's a thing. There's a study done every year where they do this index of how people are in countries. And the scale isn't very big. It goes anywhere from a two, those are the least happy people, to an eight. Those are the most happy people, right? There's not a lot of room between those. And so what they do is they break it down by continent, and then they have some of the uh, countries in there. So you could kind of see, for instance, if we go to um, Africa, we've got um, the most uh, happy people in Africa are, are in Mauritius uh, with 6.1 on the scale. Uh, the least happy are in Zimbabwe um, at 3.0. So they're not real happy there. Uh, we can go to Europe, and in Europe, uh, actually interesting, this is at the, done at the beginning of the year, it says the least happy people are in Ukraine at 5.1. Although there's, over here, there's not a lot of a spread. It's just 5.5 in Russia, 5.6 in China. You go up to Finland, and it's 7.8. So they're crazy happy up there. They are about the happiest people, apparently, in the whole world. Uh, you go down to uh, Oceania, you've got New Zealand, and Australia that are both at 7.2. So uh, again, probably all that sunshine down there. And then you go over to South America. Least happier in Venezuela at 4.9. Uh, the most happier in Uruguay at 6.5. But then when you go to uh, North America, you see the United States and Canada are both at 7.0. So that's the thing that really got me to thinking um, that day sitting by the pool feeling pretty happy about life, um, was the fact that as, as Americans, um, when we compare ourselves to most people in the world today and most people throughout all of history, what we understand is that we are people who by and large are the most materially uh, blessed people in the history of the world. We have uh, better health, better health care than most people have ever had. Uh, we live longer lives. We have access to good food, housing, um, wealth. We have more disposable income than most people in the world have ever had. I know it probably doesn't feel like you have much, but if you have any, you have more than most people have ever had. Uh, free time, we, we generally work fewer hours than most people. Uh, health care, freedoms... But here's what I was kind of wrestling with. We are among the happiest people on the earth, but study after study reveals that we don't have peace. In other words, studies show that we lack peace, that we have relatively high levels of anxiety compared with the rest of the world. Um, high levels of stress, and we lack contentment. A lot of the countries in the world that are less happy than us are more content than us. Right? That's a, a, just an interesting, and I, I was thinking about how can that be? How can we be so happy and yet lack peace? And it's a little difficult to kind of delineate, but as I was thinking about what happiness is, and there's a lot of different ideas about what happiness is and what peace is, I was thinking that generally when, when we talk about happiness in our society, we're usually talking about um, something that's connected to our current circumstances. We understand for the most part happiness comes and goes, right? Like maybe one day I'm sitting by the pool on a lounge chair, it's 90 degrees, I'm, I'm getting some sun and Shelby is there next to me and I'm petting Shelby and I'm very, very happy. And then just hypothetically imagine that three days later uh, I'm in the Pacific Northwest, it's snowing, hailing, the horses of the apocalypse are coming down Highway 14 and everyone's driving like a madman because they can't drive in snow. And I, I'm not so happy on that day. Like we understand that happiness 
happiness just kind of comes and goes based on circumstances. And that's, that's okay, right? But peace is different. What would we call peace? How would we define it? Well, Marion Webster's would say that peace is freedom from public disturbance or war. Get that. But the second one I like a lot. It's a quiet and calm state of mind. Not circumstances, but mind. In other words, another way to think about it is when we talk about happiness, we're, we tend, usually we're talking about our circumstances. But when we talk about peace, especially peace in the Bible, it's more about a state of the soul. It's more of a transcendent thing. It's not tied to the weather, thank goodness, uh, or, you know, traffic on Highway 14. Peace is different. Peace is deeper. Peace is more profound and more powerful. So, for instance, peace is what makes it possible to be living in the midst of circumstances that we would not say make us happy, and yet we still have peace. So, for instance, somebody could be ill and not be happy about it, but have peace. Somebody could have cancer, and we've all met people like this, who would say, I'm not happy about it, but I'm at peace. Or people can be going through financial troubles or relational problems or vocational problems or uncertainty, and yet they would say their soul is at rest. They're not happy about what they're going through, but they are at peace. And yet, as Americans, I would say we tend to focus on happiness. We're, we pursue happiness more than we pursue peace. We focus on better circumstances more than focusing on a better soul. And what you end up with then are things like, I can remember a year ago having a lot of conversations with people who would say something like this, like if we could just get through COVID, I'd be happy. If we could just get rid of masks, if we could just get rid of physical distancing, I would be happy. Now, a year later, and the COVID numbers are down and the masks are gone, but studies are suggesting we're just as stressed as we were when COVID was around and such a problem. But just we're worried about different stuff now. What, what, what if it comes back? What about war? Right? We got war going on. It's a terrible thing. What if it gets bigger? What if it spills over? What if it becomes nuclear? Right? People are worried about that. What are we worried about? We're worried about inflation. It's getting out of control. We're worried about the energy crisis and the, and the cost of energy. We're worried about the political divisions in our, in our country and an upcoming election, election cycle and incivility. Incivility kind of concerns me about, you know, we've got uh, um, supply shortages. We have climate change going on, right? Obviously, it's getting hotter around here. Uh, cultural conflict, moral conflict, ethical conflict. And then on top of that, think about what we've done with our jobs. So I don't know if you've heard of this thing called the Great Resignation. The Great Resignation is uh, this phenomenon where more people over the last two years have quit their jobs and changed jobs than any other time since we've been keeping records. A lot of people reach this place during COVID where they're like, I can't take this job anymore. I'm not happy because this job, I'm going to get a new job where I'll be happy. Now, some interesting studies are starting to come out now about the great resignation. Fast Company recently put out a survey and showed that 65% of employees right now say they're looking for a new job. 65% of people right now say, I'm looking for a new job. Why? Number one reason, I'm not happy with my current job. That's the number one reason. Um, so if you're not happy with your job, the solution obviously is you need a, a better job. You need a, a different job. But how does that work for people? Muse just did a study and found that 72% of people who changed their job during COVID now regret changing their job. 72% 
change. Now, now think about this for a minute. They say it's because their new job turned out to be, quote, very different <laughs> from what they expected. They said it's their boss's fault. They weren't fully telling them about the job. The job isn't perfect. The job has issues. It has stress and anxiety. Come on, people. Let's think about this for a minute. Let's imagine that you quit your job because you're going to get a better job and you get a job. Now, how did you get that job? Well, somebody quit that job <laughs> because they were looking for a better job. Maybe they took your old job. I don't know, right? In fact, that kind of leads us to the next thing. 48% reported that they were trying to get their old job back. It's like the grass is just the same, isn't it? But we always think it's greener. So I want to just be up front this morning as we talk about peace. You're not going to find a job. You're not going to find it in your circumstances. Where are you going to find it? I'm just going to say this. Peace is found in our creator. Peace is not found in our circumstances. It's found in the one who made us and the one who created us. You see, we believe that we are created by God. That we are created by God, thought up by God, designed by God, and for God's purposes. So he didn't just create us and throw us out there, hey, figure something out. He has purposes for us. But of course, we know, we understand that there's this thing called sin. And sin, very simply, is when we reject God's rightful authority in our life and we decide, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what I want with the life that I have. And because of that, death has entered into the world because of sin. Actually, two kinds of death. We usually just think about the first one, physical death. Physical death has entered the world because of sin. And because of sin, everyone dies. 100%, all of us in this room at some point, we're going to die. Sorry about that. But that robs us of peace, right? We were like, oh, well, my time's going to come. And, you know, I'm getting older and, and people are starting to drop and I'm afraid and we, we lack peace because of that. And there's a second kind of death, though, that's even more profound and that's spiritual death. Scripture says that when we sin, we lost intimacy with God. We lost a connection with the one who made us. And we were born with a, with a dead soul, if you will. And this robs us of peace. We are worried about our future. We are worried about tomorrow. We're worried about the next 10 years and we are worried about what's going to happen when this life is over. We're worried and we're anxious and we're stressed and rightfully so. Apart from Christ, we should be concerned about that. In fact, that's a gift that God gives us to get us to think about all this. And for thousands of years, Scripture says that God reached out to humanity in their sin. He reached out through prophets he reached out through the giving of his word, through blessing people who didn't deserve to be blessed, through working miracles and, and rescuing people, through, through spiritual leaders. But God's ultimate solution was found in his son, was found in Jesus, who is God born in the flesh. And, and back in December, we celebrated that part of the story, that God came to us in the flesh. He came to seek and to save the lost. He was born of a virgin without sin. Around 30 years old, he began his public ministry that lasted about three years. He taught truth. He revealed God to man in every possible way. And he, he proved that through the working of miracles and healing and casting out demons by feeding people miraculously, through loving. He spoke words that are still embraced by billions of people today. But the religious leaders hated him. And they conspired to have him crucified. And they crucified him on a Friday. Now, when they crucified him and they put him to death, they didn't have enough time, his disciples didn't, to prepare his body for burial because the sun was going down. It was Sabbath. They couldn't handle the body. So they very quickly uh, placed the body of Jesus in a tomb. And their whole goal was after the Sabbath to come back on a Sunday morning and finish preparing that body for burial. The religious leaders were worried that the disciples might come and steal the body, so a large stone was rolled in front of it, it was sealed, and guards 
were placed there. In Mark chapter 16, verse 1, we read the story about what happens on that first Sunday morning, on Resurrection Sunday. It tells us this. It says, now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might come and anoint Jesus' body. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So these women had been followers of Jesus. And I mean like literal followers, like they, they picked up and they followed him around and they supported his ministry and they saw him work miracles and they heard him teach truth. They saw him heal and feed thousands and, and cast out demons. They, they saw him rise, uh, raise people from the dead and they saw the compassion of God that was shown through Jesus. But they also saw some other things. They saw him betrayed, uh, arrested, uh, tortured and crucified, and they saw his dead body. They saw the body of Christ that was placed in a tomb. And it says here that they were going to the tomb on that resurrection morning because they saw him die and they expected he would stay dead. They went to the tomb because they expected him to be there, but to be dead, and that's why they took the spices to prepare his body. They're not expecting a resurrection. In verse 4, and, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. So they were alarmed because they didn't see what they expected to see, and they saw what they didn't expect. They expected to see the body of Jesus, which they did not see, and they did not expect to see uh, this person, this, this angel, this being in the tomb, which they did see. And so Everything's kind of upside down for them and they are alarmed. You know, they're, they're not like, oh my goodness, it's a resurrection. Let's, let's celebrate. That's not what happens. Notice, and he said to them, do not be alarmed because they were alarmed. Uh, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. It's, it's pretty plain what's going on here, right? See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So notice how it describes them, not praising God, not celebrating life, like let's go through town and tell everybody that Jesus has risen from the dead. They are alarmed, they are running for their lives. As they run, they are trembling, they're shaking, they're so scared, they're confused because they, they've seen this stuff, but they can't connect the dots, and they are afraid. They're in fear. In John 20, it picks up the story with a little overlap. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, we just read about, came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away, as we read, from the tomb. And so she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. So let me just explain this really quick. So this is from the Gospel of John. It was written by a guy named John who doesn't refer to himself in the first person. Um, he refers to himself sometimes as the other disciple. Uh, he's very humble. Uh, he refers to himself sometimes as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, he's not saying that Jesus loved him more than the rest of the disciples. He's just saying that if, if he was to describe himself in any way beside just his name, what he's saying is the thing that has really defined him is that Jesus loved him. Like, that's the thing that defines him now. So that's the badge that he wears. And so he, he's, the, he's the guy who wrote this. He's the, the one who Jesus loved. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, 
and we do not know where they have laid him. So when she comes, she doesn't say, hey, we went to the tomb and Jesus isn't there. Hallelujah, he rose from the grave. She doesn't say that. She says, somebody must have taken the body and we don't know. We don't know where that body is now. So she's, she's worried about this. So Peter went out with the other disciple, that's John, and they were going towards the tomb. So the picture we get is they're like, we gotta go figure this out. Let's go figure out what happened. So John and Peter begin to walk down the road. Now, Peter's probably the oldest of the disciples, we, we think, and John is probably the youngest of the disciples. And there's a little bit of a spread between them. So we've got the oldest and we've got the youngest. And they're, they're walking to the tomb. But then something happens. It says, but, but both of them were running together. So I don't, I don't know exactly how it went down. They're walking, and pretty soon, I don't know, maybe Peter starts walking fast. And then John's like, yeah, I can do, I can do better than that. And he walks a little faster. And then pretty soon, it's who's going to get there before. So they break out into a sprint. And they're sprinting there. And it tells us... Um, that uh, it says here that both of them were running together, but the other disciple, that's John, right? But the other disciple uh, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So this is kind of passive aggressive bragging on John's part because he doesn't really, he doesn't say I beat Peter, but he says it roundabout. He's like, just in case you were wondering, I got there first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him, and he went straight into the tomb. That's Peter. Just jump right in. Goes right into the tomb where John wouldn't go. And he saw the linen cloths that were lying there that had been wrapped around Jesus, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up. Jesus made his bed and he placed it uh, by itself. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So the, the disciples, they're in shock. They didn't understand that Jesus came to die and they didn't understand that he would rise from the dead. Now, they didn't understand it, although they should have, because Jesus had explained it to them on multiple occasions that this would happen, but it didn't fit their, their, their plan for Jesus. It wasn't what they wanted him to do. What they thought was, they thought that Jesus would use his miraculous power to set up a political kingdom. They didn't understand that the kingdom of God comes to the hearts of men and women. But they thought it was going to be a political kingdom. They thought that Jesus would use all of this power that he displayed in order to free Israel from Roman rule. So when he dies on the cross, they're in shock and they're confused because it just doesn't equate. You know, sometimes it's like that with God, isn't it? We think we know what God should do. And when God does something else, it, it, it confuses us. On Easter morning, they are not waiting at the tomb. They did not bring lawn chairs and Starbucks coffee with a big countdown clock and here comes Jesus. They just, they expect that when they get to the tomb, the dead body of Jesus will be there. That's what they expect. Now in John 20, it tells us that the rest of the day went by and on the evening of that day, so now it's the evening of resurrection day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked where the disciples were. They were in the upper room and the doors to that room were locked. Why? Because they were afraid of the Jews. And in the midst of all that, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So they're in a room and the doors are locked. Why? Because they're afraid that the people who killed Jesus are coming for them next. And if they could kill Jesus, they could probably take out the disciples too. So they are afraid and they're hiding for their lives behind locked doors. The doors are locked. They're not out proclaiming Jesus is risen from the grave. 
They're behind locked doors. In the midst of this, Jesus just walks in. He just kind of walks right through the door. And they are, he says, peace be with you. Why would he say peace be with you? Because they're probably freaking out, right? They're like, the doors are locked. Who let the door open? And who is, who is this guy, right, that just walked in here? They saw him crucified. They saw him die. They saw him laying in a tomb. And now he's walked through a locked door. In Luke 24, it says this, but they were startled and they were frightened and they thought they saw a spirit. They thought it was a, a ghost, maybe. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? Again, notice the words that are used to describe them. They're startled. They're not expecting it. <laughs> I mean, the doors are locked. They're frightened. They're, they're troubled. And they're, they're doubting. That is, they're debating in their minds. They're seeing this with their eyes, but it can't compute in their minds at what they're seeing. And in John 20, 20, it tells us this. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and he showed them his side. And the disciples were overjoyed. Uh, they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Not just full of joy, but overjoyed. They couldn't contain it. It went beyond them. I've tried to imagine. Can you imagine? If you've ever read the Gospels, if you read it and imagine that you picked up your life and you just began to follow Jesus for three years everywhere he went and you believed that he was God in the flesh and you believed that he was the savior of the world and you staked your life on him and then suddenly one day everything goes sideways and he's arrested and, and he's crucified and he's dead. You're looking at his dead body and with that body, with Jesus, dies all of your hopes for the future. Now suddenly you have no future. You don't know what's going to happen now. You're in a room and the doors are locked and you're scared to death that your days are numbered and they're coming for you next. And suddenly, there's Jesus. And he's like, hey, peace, right? Like, what are you guys all, what are you all worried about, right? I told you, can you imagine what you feel like on that day? I mean, I've tried to imagine it. I mean, you know that day will come for you, by the way. There's coming a day when you will see Jesus face to face. Can you imagine the change of mind that you're going to have on the day that you stand before him and you look him in the eyes? Like that day is coming, but that day for them was right there. And he goes on in verse 21, he says to them, peace be with you. Peace be with you. This isn't merely a kind greeting. This is an invitation. It's an invitation not merely to happiness, which comes and goes, but to, be, to peace. Jesus says, I have peace for you. So a lot of times when we think about peace, we think about the peace of God. But Jesus is primarily talking about something different here. He's not talking about the peace of God. He's talking about peace with God. And those are two different things. He's talking about peace with God. Again, in John 20, 21, Jesus says to them, peace be with you. That word peace in the Greek means quietness or rest. It has the idea of, of, of something that was torn asunder and is now brought back together. It's been reconciled. It's at one. It's at, it's at rest. In Romans chapter 5, uh, in the first two verses is perhaps uh, one of the greatest passages on this idea of peace and where it comes from. In Romans 5, when it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and we'll, we'll break this down in a minute. Since we have been justified by faith, notice we have peace. We have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What an amazing couple of sentences there. It says that what God offers is peace with God. 
which is different from peace, the peace of God, which we'll talk about in a minute. Now, the Bible basically says that sin puts us at war with God. We would like to think that in our sin, we're merely indifferent toward God. But the truth is, when we sin against God, we are at war with God. Whenever you have two parties that are claiming absolute control over one thing, there's always going to be conflict. So, for instance, on a world stage, we could see right now that that's what's happening in Ukraine, right? We have, again, we have people who say, this is our country, and we should, we should have uh, sovereignty over ourselves to make our own decisions. And then you have another country, or at least a leader of another country, saying, no, I want to have authority over you. And so what do you have? You have war. You have disagreement. You have conflict. God is our creator. And as our creator, God has claimed authority over us. God, God doesn't simply walk into our world and say, hey, you know, I'm God and I got no plans for you. Just you know, do whatever you want and I'll try to get behind you. Scripture says that God created us with purpose, with plans. But before we come to Christ, basically, we assume that we have the right to rule ourselves. We have the right to make our own decisions. And before we come to Christ, basically, we are resisting his claim over us. And we fight against his purposes for us. We fight against his will for us. We fight against his moral standards. We, right, people say this all the time. Nobody has a right to say what's right and wrong for me. I'll decide what's right and wrong for me. You decide what's right and wrong for you. I'll do me. You do you, right? God steps into all that and says, that's not the way it works. I decide what's right. And I decide what's wrong. And in our sin, we are not merely indifferent toward God. We are enemies. That's what scripture says. We are enemies of God and we are at war with God. And by the way, on the flip side, it also means that our disobedience means that God has a problem with us and that his wrath is upon us. Sometimes I hear people say, you know, uh, uh, when they find out I'm a pastor, they'll say things like, well, I mean, I read the Bible. I went to church and I kind of have a problem with God. People tell me that sometimes. I have a problem with God. The, the Bible says this and I have a problem with that. Or, or God's like this and I have a problem with that. As if, right, God's in heaven going, oh, I just hope they like me. You know, I mean, <laughs> see, the truth is that God has a problem with you when you're in sin and apart from Christ. And, and God, his anger, his wrath is not like ours. It's, it's not vengeful and vindictive. God's, God's justice, God's anger, God's wrath is what we would call legal, and it is just. It, it is right. We don't really understand that in our culture, because in our culture, uh, just, uh, justice is, is a relative thing. It, it's, a, it's a moving target. Um, in our culture today, our culture demands certain offenses go punished and some, some don't. So, for instance, a couple weeks ago on Facebook, I saw an article that somebody commented on. It was an article about, and I won't get into the details, but somebody who had committed a crime against someone else. And when it was time to go to court, the people that he had uh, offended decided to forgive him and not take him to court so that he would not have to receive justice, if you will, from the justice system. And that was their choice. And a bunch of people jumped on Facebook and said, this is terrible, this is awful. Um, no one should ever be able to get off the hook for doing these kind of things. And, and I say that because I find in our world, everybody, all of us kind of make up our own little list. Here's all the thi here are things that should always be punished, and here are the things that I'd let go. 
And that's kind of what we do in our world. But God is different because God says that all sin demands justice. All of it. And in this passage, Paul talks about just, being justified. And justified is a legal term. It, it basically means to be made right with God. Justified means that all my sins are forgiven. Justified means that I, I no longer have any guilt for my sin. And, and I no longer have any shame. Uh, that there's no condemnation in Christ. There's no, no fear of future judgment. Right? Imagine that. Imagine being forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, and future, and that they'll never be held against you. And that when you stand before God, he will say that you are justified. You are just, not because of what you did, but because of what Christ did for you. In fact, that's what he goes on to say. Justification comes not through being good enough, not through religion, not through ritual. It comes through faith in Christ. Faith basically means trust. It is to trust in Jesus. It's to trust, we sometimes say, it's to trust his person, his work, and his word. His person, that is, that he, he is God in the flesh, that, that he was God come to us, that he was without sin, that we trust in his works, that what he did on the cross for us through his death and his resurrection, that he has completely dealt with sin and completely dealt with death, and there's nothing that you or I can add to it. It's not the, the gospel, it's not Jesus plus. It's just Jesus, and, and that we trust in his words and when we trust Christ, it says that God gives us this thing called grace. Grace just literally means it's, it's a gift that God gives to us. So again, salvation can never be earned through being good enough or, or doing certain rituals or, or religious things or keeping certain rules or doing more good stuff than bad stuff, at least being better than the person sitting next to you. God doesn't grade on a curve. It's through grace. Grace basically means that Jesus did all the work and we take the gift. And there's something in us that always resists that, doesn't it? We always, we always want to try to just contribute a little bit, but it doesn't work that way. We're saved by grace. In Colossians 1, it tells us this, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, that is in Christ, and, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, that is things that were, were broken apart by sin to bring them back together, whether things on earth or things in heaven, notice here, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is how we are made right with God, through the blood, through the sacrifice of Christ. I wonder what you think you are worth to God. Have you ever thought about what you are worth to God? Maybe someone told you somewhere along your life that you're worthless. What does God say about you? I came across this infographic recently. Uh, this was from last year on um, record-breaking auctions in 2021. And you know, they always say, what is something worth? It's worth whatever somebody's willing to pay for it. But it's really interesting to see what people are willing to pay for. So last year, for instance, in auctions, a, uh, a purse, I'm gonna say a purse, uh, was sold for $155,000. I don't care if it's a Birkin bag, it's a purse, all right? And it was sold, no, just $155,000. You say, oh, it's a Birkin bag, I don't care, all right? Uh, but this is what gets me, all right? One and a half million dollars for a pair of Michael Jordan's Nike airships. So I'll just let you on a little secret. Uh, when I was in Phoenix a week and a half ago, I went to the Nike store and I got these for half price. Now you have to plug them in every night, all right? But I figured out I can get over 17,000 pair of these for what that cost. Those are cool, but come on. Have you, what could you do with $1.5 million, right? 
you probably wouldn't buy a pair of shoes. I don't know. Um, $43 million were paid for one of the uh, first editions of the United States Constitution. Uh, again, that's pretty cool, but again, $43 million. Or how about, I'm just going to put it this way, almost $19 million for a $20 coin. It's just, yeah, I know it was made in 1933, but I'm just saying. Here's my favorite, though, right here. $103 million for a Pablo Picasso. $103 million. And it's not even that good. All right, so I'm just. <laughs> but here's the thing, all right? What is something worth? It's worth whatever someone is willing to pay for it. What are you worth? Well, God says you are worth the life of his son. Who's willing to come and to die for you, and to rise for you, so that you could have life in Christ, so that you could be reconciled to the Father. I don't care what anyone else has told you you're worth. God says you're worth the life of his son. He talks about making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The penalty for sin is death. It's what justice demands. So Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. He was your substitute. The Bible uses all sorts of words. He, he was your substitute. He, he redeemed you from death and sin and from punishment. And he offers to you peace with God. This is what God offers to put our soul at rest. It's not the only thing, though, on a practical level that he offers. He doesn't just offer peace with God. He offers us peace within but the peace within is, if you will, a byproduct of peace with God. It's where we usually go first. But really, it's the product of that. When I mean peace within, what I mean is this. Peace with God produces a, a tangible peace within us in the midst of a world that is filled with conflict and problems and troubles and stress. Have you noticed that? Like, for those of you who are Christians, did you notice that the day you gave your life to Christ, it's not like all your problems went away? There are still problems. Our world is still plenty messed up. But God offers us a peace within. In John 16, this is what he says. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Now in the world, you'll have tribulation. In the world, you'll have problems. In the world, you'll have stress and anxiety and all that stuff. Jesus says, but take heart because I've overcome. Right? I've overcome the world. Jesus offers us a peace not from difficulties, but in the midst of difficulties because life is filled with problems. Difficult people, right? Maybe I might be the person sitting next to you, uh, but probably not. Um, financial problems, educational challenges, vocational challenges. There's health challenges in life. There's hard choices and conflict and disappointment. But as believers, we belong to God. And as people who belong to God, there's a word we like to refer to, the word providence. And we've been studying the life of Joseph and talking a lot about providence. When I say providence, what I mean is this. It, it kind of has two ideas. One is that God is sovereign. That means that God is all-powerful and accomplishes everything he sets out to accomplish. The other idea, in the other hand, is this, that God is good. And when you put the idea that God is sovereign and God is good, and when you put them together, you get this idea of providence that says things like that God works all things for the good. It doesn't say that all things are good, but he says he works all things for the good of those who love and who have been called according to his purposes. And so this is the promise that God has for us. So in whatever we're going through in life, we know in our hearts that we belong to God and he, he exists in us and we are safe in Christ. 
In 2 Thessalonians 3, 16, it says this now, may the Lord of peace, right? So he is the source of peace. May he himself give you peace. Now notice this, at all times and in every way. So Jesus is the source of peace that's available to you, not just in the good times, not just when you're sitting by the pool with Shelby next to you, but at all times. Philippians 4 puts it this way. I mean, you just want to wrap it up and say, how does this play out in everyday life? Notice what Paul says. He says, yeah, I know sometimes life is hard and tough, and that's, that's part of life, but do not be anxious about anything. He's not saying there isn't stuff to be anxious about, but you as a believer don't have to be anxious about anything, but in everything, he says, by prayer... And supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here's what he's saying. God offers us peace in every circumstance, not just for heaven when we're out of this place, but even right now in the midst of difficult circumstances. And it's a peace that goes beyond logic. I mean, have you ever talked to somebody, maybe they're going through uh, cancer, going through something tough or lost someone, and you say, how are you doing? And they might say, well, I'm not happy, but I'm at peace. This is the peace that God offers to us because it's rooted in a Savior who lived and died and rose and conquered sin and death. It's a transcendent peace that cannot be taken away from us. I mean, just consider the implications of the resurrection for a moment on your everyday life. What are the implications for, say, your problems? Maybe you walked in here today with some stress and some problems and some anxiety. Does the resurrection have any interaction with that? It certainly does if you pray to God and if you cast your cares upon him. He stands ready to answer your prayers and to be there for you. But when, again, even when we think back on the story of the resurrection 2,000 years ago, it changed everything in that day. It changed the disciples. Uh, Christ dispelled their fear of the people outside the doors. They unlocked the doors. They went outside and began to proclaim the gospel to people. Uh, Following Jesus in that day was unpopular and it was dangerous. Uh, You could lose your job. You could become an outcast. They could drive you out of your home, out of your city, out of your job. Christians were persecuted. Uh, They were driven from their towns. They were put in prison, tortured, and even killed. And yet the church just continued to spread. It just continued to spread in Jerusalem and, and in Judea and throughout the Roman Empire and eventually around the world. And 2,000 years later, billions of people follow Jesus and celebrate the resurrection. And every weekend, one-third of the world's population, think about this, gather together in the name of Christ to recount stories about what he did and what he taught, and they sing about him, and they worship him, and they, they believe. How do you explain that? It's because the tomb is empty. It's because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And he offers us peace with God and he offers us the peace of God. At the end of the Gospel of John, he says this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Gospel isn't just something to come and hear every Easter. It's something to believe every day, every moment of every day. And it's not just something you believe for the future. It's for right now. So I don't know if you, if you came in here this morning and you came in without Christ, I want you to know that you don't have to leave without Christ. That you can respond to, to the gospel and God's invitation right now. And there's no ritual and there's no formula prayer you need to pray. You just need to trust Christ. And in a moment, we're, we're gonna pray and that sometimes that's a great way just to start that with God in prayer to confess to the Lord that, that you believe 
in Jesus Christ, that you believe that he is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. The scripture says if we confess and believe that, that we shall be saved. And I want to encourage you. In fact, I want to plead with you. If you came in here today without Christ, don't leave without Christ because you don't have to. You can have the peace of God today. We'll pray in a moment, but I wanted to say one other thing. If you came in here this morning with Christ, but you also came in with anxiety and stress, just know you don't have to leave with that. God stands ready for you to cast your cares upon him. And, and, and the Lord who, who died for our sin and who rose from the dead has power for you, care for you today, if you will but cast your cares upon him. We have the opportunity today to leave not the same way we came in, but to be people who have peace with God and the peace of God. Let me pray for us and we'll close in a song together. Father God, I thank you so much this morning for the opportunity to be here and to once again hear the gospel and to think about uh, our Savior, our Savior who came, our Savior who lived, our Savior who bled and died, who was buried and on the third day rose from the dead and conquered sin and conquered death and saves all who come to him by faith. Father, my prayer for us is if there was anyone in this room who walked in this morning, in this service or the last two services, who walked in without faith, that we would place our faith right here and right now in Christ. And if that describes you, again, you can just pray to the Father right now. You can just confess to him in prayer. Confess to him that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, as we've talked about. You can ask God right now to come in and forgive your sins, to wash you of those sins, to make you clean, to give you the Holy Spirit, to make you a child of his and to walk you into a future, a bright future with Christ. I encourage you right now to confess that before your Father. And if you're here this morning, and you came in with Christ, but you also came in with stress and worry and anxiety, I want you to know that he stands ready right now to give you his peace. You can cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Cast those cares at the foot of the cross. And the Savior who bled and died and rose is the same Savior who offers you peace right now in the midst of a challenging world. Will you cast your care upon him right now? Father God, we give both our cares and our worries and our concerns to you now. And we ask that your peace that surpasses all comprehension will indeed come in and guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And we pray that this is a day of faith for every one of us. We thank you for your son who is risen from the grave. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen.